Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Scottish historian Ian McInnes joins me to talk about John's sojourn at White Tree. Hey, if you want to read a real book, I mean like a real book, like a macho book, like a grown-ass adult history book, a book that's going to put hair in your chest. Scotland's Second War of Independence 1332 to 1357 by Ian McInnes. It'll take a little scratch to buy that one, but boy, oh boy, will you impress your friends. Okay. Uh, After my conversation with Ian, I include a conversation I had with a fellow that I struck up uh, a conversation with on email with last week, uh, Gerard. Gerard and I talk a little bit about race in House of the Dragon. All right. Without further ado, here is historian Ian McInnes. Ian, we're talking about a John chapter today. I don't know if you and I have have we talked about a John chapter before, you and I? I don't I don't think so. All right. All right. Well, this is a little bit interesting to me because in many ways, you know, the wall is modeled after Hadrian's wall. Yeah. In that analogy, the wildlings would be analogous to the Scots at a <laughs> the picks at a particular period of time, or some kind of combination of, mm. you know, the, the rumors about you wild folk up north. <laughs> um, and I'm <laughs> I'm wondering if uh, you see Martin drawing from some of those that sort of that ancient polemic against the Scots by English folk. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think. In, in in the medieval period, certainly in the earlier medieval period, that there is there is a feeling amongst the English, or certainly one uh, given voice by English writers, English chroniclers, that you know the the Scots are less civilized, that they're more barbarous. Mm. Um, the, the, there's an interesting uh, mix after the Norman conquest because because as while while Scotland doesn't go through a Norman conquest, you know its kings are increasingly influenced by Norman ideas. You know, their the future kings are raised as princes at the English court sometimes. Mm. And the nobility, the Scottish nobility, is increasingly one that is either Norman or continental because they've been they've been brought in by the, the Scottish crown to, to settle. Um, so there is then a, a disparity between the crown and the nobility and then the rest of the Scots. And even English chroniclers actually caught on to that onto that difference. Mm. They, they see the kings and the nobles as being like us. But but the rest of the Scottish people are still pretty wild and, and still pretty barbarous because they have they have memories of of Scots in the previous century, like in the eleventh century, even still descending on northern England to take slaves and things um, from amongst the English population. So so I, I suppose with some justification. <laughs> um, now, of course, I think you know there's there's always sort of gradations of what is north, right? Depending on where hmm. you are. Oh. I was just reading in a Danny chapter Jorah's a tragic story of him marrying a southern woman and she, when she comes to Bear Island and sees you know what it means to be a lord in Bear Island she just feels like she's gone camping she, <laughs> you know she he basically just has a big old lodge and you know there's no <laughs> no fancy cooks or <laughs> singers at court or anything like that and so there's a a, a major disparity between what it means to be a lord up north and a lord down south. And I'm wondering if in the early medieval period there would have been a big difference between, let's say, you know, some of the the castle work in the south of England and, uh, you know, France and Spain and whatnot Mm. and the kinds of big halls that you might find up north. 
Yeah, I mean, I think castle building comes to Scotland by degrees, I suppose. Um, and again, that kind of Norman influence that that starts to spread over parts of the kingdom. Um, but but yes, the, the early the early types of kind of Morton Bailey style construction that that Norman influence uh, w- would again have been largely in with wood rather than with stone. And then yeah. there's a transition to stone from say the the late 12th or into the 13th century onwards. Um, but but yes, perhaps um, running a bit behind uh, norms in England or on the continent. But I suppose it's not just a it's not just an early medieval thing either. Um, we we know from like the 14th century when Scot uh, when French troops come to Scotland at various times, they find Scotland inveterably poor, um, mm. and and they don't they're not they're not all that keen to to serve to perform military service in Scotland because they just see it as a bit of a, a hole. Um, and um, <laughs> and there's there's a comment by the the Low Countries chronicler uh, Jean Froissart when he says that. Um, you know the, the the English could could destroy a Scottish homes, Scottish villages, but it only took them like three days to rebuild them. And it basically <laughs> saying that Scot Scottish house construction is so rubbish that you know it, it's easy to throw up a replacement. So you know, damning with faint praise. Uh, so so I think even in the 14th century, the 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 um, French people and, and and people on the continent don't think much of Scotland. Um, so yeah, it's not just an early thing. <laughs> so in this chapter, uh, you know. The, the Night's Watch is ranging north, and they come upon this village uh, white tree. And it's it's just a few, you know, it's it's mm. not, I mean, it, even the word village might be a little bit. <laughs> a four little, houses. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah, it's like four houses surrounding a, a giant tree. And yet, because it is in, you know, this tundra where there's nothing for miles around, it's mentioned on you know these ancient maps uh, that that Sam has found, but my my sense is that it very well could be that 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 particular spot is important not for the population that surrounds it, but because it's something of a sacred place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's the it's the largest weirwood tree anyone's ever seen, mm. and and so I'm wondering if. I do think that Martin has modeled a bit of the northern religion after his perception of druidism, which mm-hmm. is sort of a, a modern view of of, of uh, ancient people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do I, I think that there might be something there. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that you have that you know that that that's remarked upon that you know him, uh, John and and Mormon are, are talking about the tree and John's talking about its power and things, but. But yeah, if you might also expect then that if that's what attracted the village to be established round about it, that it might be bigger. Although I suppose it then just speaks to the fact that the wildling wildling society is not like society south of the wall, is it? Mm-hmm. It, it works, it operates differently. So it's yeah, I think it, it's maybe it maybe is just to emphasise that you are beyond the wall. You're beyond normal civilized society and and so everything is is different nothing is as you expect it to be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's this little uh line here that um well let, i'll go ahead and read the my, my synopsis of the chapter and we can get it more into it so mormon's company of 200 sojourn at white tree this is the fourth empty settlement that they've encountered but they remain ignorant about the doings of the wildlings John scouts one of the empty buildings with Ed and then discusses the ranging with Sam, not for the first or last time. John's thoughts turn to the whereabouts of his uncle. Ian McGinnis, I'm wondering if anything had occurred to you in this chapter uh, that that we might talk about. Uh, I thought uh, one of the things that kind of came to me was just the nature of campaigning. Um you know, it's it's. I know it's a small force or smallish force, it's a couple of hundred, but um, but just that idea of it being quite a kind of grim <laughs> thing Would to be taking part. Would that have been a small force, two hundred men? Well, I, I suppose I I saw it as being. I mean, it's not an army, not not in terms of yeah. a, you know a, a proper size thing. I mean, it, it's a. It probably is the size of a kind of smaller reading force. Yeah. Um, although a reading 
force would probably not have travelled with the baggage that they seem to take with them. Obviously, with the, the crows and things, that that would slow a force down. Yeah, raiding raiding forces tend to be fast moving, so they don't take anything that that, that they don't need. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's a kind of I don't know what you would call it. Well, Mor- Mormont seems to think when he connects with Corn Halfhand, who's got a hundred men with him. Yeah. That they'll have 300, and at that point, they'll be a very formidable force. And it could just be that 300 men, given their enemy, is mm. is significant, right? Well, I, I think I think that perhaps, uh, yeah, I agree. I think it, it speaks to the fact that, yeah, they don't expect very much of the wildlings. Although, it is, it is a bit contradictory, isn't it? You know, the wall's there to keep the wildlings out. Oh, yeah. That's what they always say. But, but, but then... Obviously, they assume that because they are better armed, better armored, that they can they can face off against a larger wilding force. That's not 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 to be concerned about. But I suppose the other thing is that three hundred men is probably about as much as the as the the watch can actually muster as far as a force these days because it's it's so depleted. Yeah, uh, it might be a rather it might be a more negative perspective of of this is all they've got. Yeah, and and I think that the the perception here is that the wildlings are you know they're so fractured into clans mm. that you might you know you might encounter a force of 50 men here and there but they're never going to unite mm. in a way that would ever be a problem yeah. and i yeah. guess in addition to that mormon's got 100 horses so yeah that's certainly a, an advantage that the wildlings wouldn't have but i mean i, I thought it was it was just interesting the way you know, it seems like a pretty grim encounter. Obviously, they're, they're venturing further north, so it gets colder, it, it, it's snowier. Um, but but just a kind of unpleasant experience, you know, camping under the stars, uh, having to go off into a bush to go to the toilet, um, f- you know, eating off whatever scraps they've taken with them. And and that description by John of, of that kind of jovialness that you have when they set out has quickly gone by the by and they're now all ratty with each other and fear is rising uh, apart from with Sam um, and that, that you know all this this kind of pall descends on the force which I think is, is nice again it's, it's, it's the reality bumping up against the kind of chivalric expectation of things perhaps at the start right I think that there's a romance of the adventure right yeah, it's like you know we're we're gonna range north and we're going yeah. to do heroic things, and this is where men can show their, you know, their gallantry and whatnot. <laughs> In reality, they, they're just stiff because they, they would they, <laughs> they they would love a bed to sleep on just one yeah. night, you know. Yes, there was a, the dollarous Ed said he'd like to sleep in that patch of straw on the floor, <laughs> um, and and uh, yeah, Sam does make the comment that he'd like to sleep under a roof. Yeah, uh, yeah no, absolutely. It, and it is just the practicalities of this. I mean, it must have been, that, that kind of thing must have been quite grim. And of course, if you're part of a medieval campaign army, then if you're if you're of a lordly status or whatever, you may have had your tents with you and things. It rather depends on, on the nature of things. But, but no, I suppose sleeping outside was still a possibility, depending on the nature of the campaign. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the Shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. How you doing, buddy? 
You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That, that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judith with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left them to be raised by Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are, too. We're preparing to once again recommission the Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. I thought uh, Ed uh, was delightful in this chapter. Yes. <laughs> He's... He's he's just uh he's like a joke a minute and of course he you know it's all it's all done by complaint you know he's you know, it did I, I I love that line of yeah you know, I I was I grew up in a house like this and then I fell on hard times and it's just like really <laughs> well it does it kind of reminds you that you know you, you, we all feel sorry for Jon Snow right mm-hmm. uh, and 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 for good reason but the reality was like. You know, this, this really does show a contrast between John's upbringing and someone like Ed, who's like, yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, if it's softer than the ground and there's a roof over it, I call it a bed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he has these uh, really funny complaints about Mormont wanting to speak to the dead. <laughs> he's like, I doubt the dead would even tell you the truth. They're probably liars in life and they're liars in death. And they probably just complain about, you know, that, you know, my neighbor's plot is better than my plot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny uh and i think we hear the name uh dolorous uh, for the first mm, time yeah yeah uh but it, it, it's quite interesting the, that martin makes that a kind of funny thing as well just because i mean obviously the night's watch have seen the dead mm-hmm. um so you'd think it was not quite the kind of thing to make light of you, you would expect if if they had was like if gallows they humor i suppose well i suppose yeah yeah, yeah. i do think that that title uh dolorous and this is just my own little theory, but I think it's a an homage in reverse to uh, to Mary from the Lord of the Rings, yeah. because uh, he's because of course John has a lot in common with Frodo, and yep. uh, he's already got a friend named Pip, which I, I you know yeah, seems, so seems cool, to yeah. me a, a, a Pippin, and then of course he's got a friend named Gren. And you put Pip and Gren together, you got Peregrine, which is the name, you know, <laughs> Pippin's real name. And so then, yeah. where's Mary? You look around. Well, of course, in Martin's world, no one's Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Rather, you've got you've got uh, Dolorous Ed, uh, and I think so. I think that you've almost have a sort of a an ironic homage to mm. to the you know to these uh, this Hobbit there and back again story. So I don't know. I think at times uh, Martin will do that. He'll he'll throw a little uh, nod to Tolkien, uh, although well disguised. Um, you saw some parallels to uh, Jean Lebel. Yeah. So um, the, there's a, a chronicler from 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 Aino in the Low Countries um, called Jean Lebel, uh, who writes mm. chronicle in the in the mid 14th century, um, and he has experience in his younger days of of being on campaign. With English forces in Northern England in 1327, uh, on the Weardale campaign, and it's it's an English army is is raised to confront the Scots who have raided right. into Northern England. Uh, and Labelle gives this account of him and his fellow Continental troops as part of this army wandering about Northern England in the rain, um, and and kind of wandering around from one village to the next, following the plumes of smoke left behind by the Scots who are setting fire to everything, but never coming in contact with the Scots. Um, and also the the Hainalters don't go on particularly well with the English. There's fighting between the the Allied troops, and it's all just a bit grim and a bit unhappy. And it just it just kind of reminded me of that, just that that very 
practical soldier's eye view of a campaign, which is, you know, so far removed from any kind of notions of, of chivalry or, or, or kind of chivalric niceties. Right. Now, this is uh, sort of told as sort of a travel narrative, or is it like a, a journal, or how, how is it uh, framed? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of reminiscence, I suppose. He, he's describing the events of the year and is able to call upon his own recollections just in terms of having uh, taken part in, in that particular campaign. And he you know, expands it to, to the campaign at large. Um, but but yeah, it's just that he, he does bring in a lot of interesting detail, including about the Scots, uh, because I mean, going back to the theme we were discussing before about Scottish savagery, um, you know, he, he describes how the Scots are very effective at war because they don't take any baggage with them. They, mm. they, they, they take food on the go. They have they have a little pouch of oatmeal, which they store under their horse's saddle. Um, <laughs> and they have a they have an iron plate, which they take with them and then of an evening they sit down they make a fire they use the oatmeal and some water and make like a, a paste or a pancake type thing and they kind of live off that they live off mm. they live off raw flesh and and river water there's all the kind of stuff that your continentals and your english knights wouldn't have been you know wouldn't have been able to deal with but the scots are so there's that there's that view of the scots being hardy and thus it making them good at warfare but but also still that kind of negative element of my god they live like animals but but it makes them effective uh-huh. um so yeah, it's it's just it's, it's it's a really nice just kind of small account of of that campaign. But yeah, as I said, it also smacks of just being quite grim. You can imagine them trudging around northern England in the rain, um, and and never never coming to blows with the enemy because the enemy won't let. Right, them. and then in this chapter, of course, you've got that you know the the village is empty, but there's mm. kind of a a smoldering or just a pile of ash with some skulls in there and you, you know, you imagine like something happened in this village. And then of course this uh, story you're talking about, you blame it on the Scots who were like ravaging the countryside. Uh, you know, we see something like that going on down South with, with Tywin's forces, uh, uh, Mm. from time to time. In fact, Arya has just, you know, encountered empty villages where, where she's, you know, she's trekking through a, a worn, torn village. In this case, we get the sense that the the Night's Watch doesn't really know, doesn't really understand why all these villages have been deserted. And it's almost a little bit more, uh, I don't know, I guess spooky. Yeah, I, I think I think Martin's been deliberately, you know, he's he's, he's ramping up the the mystery, mm-hmm. I suppose, and and because. Because yeah, I mean, he he refers to at one point as saying that you know the wood is even more haunted than than usual kind of thing, and it's it is playing again because of the the recent experience of of the dead, mm-hmm. it's very much playing up to that. But of course, you know, the villagers probably haven't been taken by the dead; they they've gone off to form part of that, you know, larger grouping under man's, haven't they? So. so we were talking a little bit before about sort of Martin's interest in druidism. And I thought I would read this little section. Um, they're, they're looking at the this this massive weirwood tree, and John says, "My father, my lord father, believed that no man could tell a lie in front of a heart tree. The old gods know when men are lying. My father believed the same," said the old bear. Let me have a look at that skull. So it's like a throwaway line, right? But I do think that there is a. Etymologically, I think that there is a connection between uh, sort of tree and truth in Old Saxon. Yeah, okay. And I think that there is there is something about the devotion to the oak that the Druids believed uh, was was connected to a man's truth. Uh, huh. And so Druids were kind of known as someone who uh, who you know people of of uh, of who spoke true and you've got these old stories like Thomas the Rhymer who like goes into an oak and encounters like the, the queen of fairyland and she comes, <laughs> he he's given a tongue that will not lie when he comes out. So there's these connections to the, the at least these old stories that suggest that there's a, a some kind of connection between the, the practice of Druidism and the truth. And I'm wondering if John's reference to his father kind of tells us a little bit something about 
sort of Ned's religion and Ned's character. Mm. You know, famously, Ned <laughs> Ned is so <laughs> such a a hardliner with, with you know with, when it comes to speaking honesty, and of course he lies a few mm. times down south. But he's not nearly as good of a liar as someone like Littlefinger. And I think that there might be something <laughs> about his connection to the religion of the North that really makes him ill-equipped uh, for yeah. Southern politics. I, I, I just thought that little line was an interesting uh, suggestion about the religion of the North. I, I suppose it, it also ties into that, you know, the, the, the fact that the wildlings... You know, if you extend that, I suppose in religious terms, the wildlings and the northerners aren't actually that different. Um, you know, yeah. because of their attachment or potential attachment to the old gods, they they haven't they haven't gone the way of of the south, which you know, with its newfangled ideas of of the seven and things. Um, and and you know, it is that determination to to stick to the old ways of doing things. I suppose I, I thought as well the whole idea of truth and things. I was thinking as well of you know medieval oaths. Um, you know that, that if you you swear an oath in the Bible. Uh, or, mm. or something similar, but you're swearing, you're swearing it before God, and so you, you again, can't or or at least shouldn't um, lie or, or or break that. Um, and I suppose I, I saw that kind of similarly to to what. Well, yeah, and the knights, the, the, I guess the the tradition, the old tradition of the Knights Watch is to swear your vow to the Order in front of the in front of the heart tree. Um, which which John does, and of course, I, I think that that is meant to create something of a a, a religious veneer to the the institution uh, of mm. the Night's Watch. Uh, I I don't know. It's it's an interesting uh, little bit. Now, I, of course, I don't know how much Martin is aware <laughs> of histories of Druidism because I think in many in many cases we're just dealing with oral history. Uh, of yeah. the druids, uh, but of course you've got modern day druids who who seems seem to, you know, at least in lip service, draw from ancient traditions. Uh, so I, I don't know how much of of this is sort of a modern look at the druids, or you know, sort of an an homage, you know, a wink and a nod to the druids, or something like that. <laughs> I suppose that there's also the link to the the kind of. Um culture around death as well um which which you know in in pre-christian societies you know would have been at times you know the the burning mm. of the of the body which of course then is extended as, as as john suspects because you know you don't want to leave any bodies behind because then they might come right, back yeah. um but but which is also which also ties into that kind of pre-christian view of, of cremation as opposed to that's burial. right that's right um, notable introductions in this chapter. Uh, we have, well, we have quite a few. We have Bedwick, who they call Giant. Um, we hear Ed's nickname for the first time. Uh, we're introduced to White Tree. We uh, we meet uh, Jarman Buckwell and Otten Withers. Um, so, yeah, so <laughs> I don't know I don't know how, how he comes up with these names. I <laughs> I think he said sometimes he just opens up old books and looks at what people's names were back then. But on a, on a, mm. uh, on occasion, he will invent a name. Like uh, the other day, I was reading a, a, a chapter where he, you know, one of the lords in the chapter was Axel Florent, which I think is an homage <laughs> to Axel Rose. <laughs> so I think <laughs> I, do th- I do think that he's uh, it's he's not always faithful in naming these. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes these names are quite modern. Um and keeping up with my practice of of documenting all of the words of Mormon's bird. Uh he says old three times. He says gone four times. He says cr- he says corn once and he says snow. Uh, and I, or, or no, no, he doesn't say snow. Sam is teaching the other birds to say snow. And, yeah. uh, interesting throwaway line here. I thought it was maybe a bit of foreshadowing. Um, we're told that in the North or the, for, for men of the night's watch, uh, the word snow is synonymous with death. And mm. of course, I think you know we could ease knowing what happens to John. I think that we can um, 
you know, we could infer that there is a little bit of foreshadowing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, notable differences. Uh, none of this. None of this happens in the show. I no. <laughs> the, there's no white tree. I think that the the troop is much smaller. Um, yeah. I think that in early on in the the series, you know, just getting you know ten horses together was kind of a an expense that they were trying to avoid. Uh, so yeah. you know, two hundred troops and. <laughs> Hundred horses is not it's not within the budget. Not going to happen. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. I think I think that the, the, there's a kind of hint of this chapter in the their arrival at Crash. Yeah, maybe camp. so. It's, it's, right. Some of, some yeah. of their hunger, some of their desperation in the campaign uh, is, is portrayed in that. I also noted, and I I kind of been. I'm a little bit persnickety when it comes to this, but when they are up north, it it bothers me to no end that there's no hats or hoods on these actors. Yeah. Hmm. I just feel like if you're up in the up in the snowy tundra, cover mm. your head. You just <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I noted in this chapter. That Sam is wearing a hood, and I thought that's smart, Sam. Uh, Way to go! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, but you have, you have to make them visible or, or recognizable. Well, and you've got for the for the, for the viewing you audience. Know, Kit so Harrington has such a beautiful head of hair. You you don't want to cover it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. A- aesthetic decisions, Willow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Ian, thank you so much for your time. I always uh, always learn a lot, and I always enjoy talking about this with you. No, thanks very much. It's, it's, uh, it's always fun, so that's why I keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, man, I appreciate it. What's your plan today? You... Uh, no, I've got another hour of work, and then I have a I have a run to go and uh, and do before the the weekend. Uh, right. But then I it, it's uh, it, it's cheat night tonight, so I get to uh, after I have my run, I get to enjoy pizza. So um, oh, be, very good, fantastic. Looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hey, uh, how about uh, you? Just to... you... Oh, I've got a I've got a couple of doctoral defenses that I'm doing later today. Oh right. So oh, I'm just wow. gonna what, the sa- in the same day. Two in the same day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's it's kind of, it's a different kind of thing, and it, these are both done on Zoom. Uh, oh right. Yeah, yeah. So you know you know hang up with one person and then log on with another person <laughs> and uh, different much much less of a. I guess I, when I when I got my PhD, it felt like I had run a marathon afterwards. Yeah. Like when I when I did my doctoral defense, it really did feel like I was I had barely crossed the finish line. I was just exhausted, and yeah. you know my both my external my internal and external world Cambridge guys that kind of felt like you know it's a rite of passage to make this guy feel like yeah, he's yeah. a complete failure. So, I mean, I I left thinking like uh, I, I I can't believe I I can't believe I watched that. I'm walking away. I'm gonna walk away with an M lit. This is this is a disaster. <laughs> and then you know I walk back in the room and they're all smiles and congratulatory. Yeah. You know, it was this whole performative thing, and I I yeah. I just com- felt completely blindsided by the whole experience. I don't know if you had a, any kind of similar experience. I, I was I was fortunate in that they they said I essentially passed the the, the thesis bit of it, um, but I still had to pass the you know the viva part of it. So you know they they essentially kind of said it was it was it was two separate things almost. Oh, and, and they they broke it up. Into two, well, that puts a little bit less pressure for sure. Yeah, so I, I I felt a bit more confident then in the discussion that followed. But they still they still we still had a two hour discussion. Um, which was which was you know nerve wracking, but uh, but at yeah. least it wasn't. I didn't think the whole thing was on the line, and I you know I didn't. I wasn't sitting outside thinking I failed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. It was it was a <laughs> trying moment. Did you feel like Ooh. it was more of a celebration of your work or like an interrogation of your work? Um, I think it was it was more interrogatory but but not in a bad way you know it was it was it was you know okay let's let's go into more detail about this so it was you know it was a nice academic uh-huh. discussion uh about some key themes and 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 you know that's the way that's that's yeah absolutely 
Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I sat on a I sat on a, on a thesis panel recently as the external examiner for the first time. So I, I got to I got to experience that the other way around. And yeah, I, I did I did try as much as possible to make it like that because because yeah, I think that's that's interesting. It's interesting for me, never mind for them. Yeah, the the role of the external is almost supposed to be something of a devil's advocate, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but you were like, mm, I don't think I'm going to be a hard ass. Oh no, no, I, I don't think I'm in any position to to want to be, never mind <laughs> anything else. No, I, I I quite enjoyed it, and um, hopefully the student did too. Once they once they they they, they knew they passed, so <laughs> that was the main thing. All right, I'll I'll let you go. I really appreciate it. Magic, thanks. Anthony. Good speech again. And now, Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Um, I've got a big problem with what's going on up north, Steve. All right. So we go back up north. Are we and talking? We... Are we talking north? The the, the whole the, the the Theon is. Uh... No, no. I mean the north of the wall, like beyond where the 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 fist of the first men. Mm-hmm. And we meet a corn half hand. And uh, I'm interested in that character. Like, John really idolizes Corrin Halfhand. Corrin kind of looks like the prototypical ranger, and he's always wanted to be a ranger. And uh, he, you know, he can survive for a full winter beyond the wall. And so he's sort of this heroic character in John's eyes, right? Right. In reality, Steve, he's the only one wearing a hat. Huh. I've got a big problem with all of these people up north not wearing hats yeah. of course they're gonna die up north they're not wearing hats well but that just shows how much why he is uh, to be respected right yeah put on a hat it's a simple thing you like, can the only survive thing that, in the snow put on it's a the hat. thing that's <laughs> the only thing that separates him from everybody else is like you have lord mormon who's leading the whole crew he's bald and he's not wearing a hat yeah it's like like is he a great soldier no but for some reason like well everybody else is just chattering he seems to be fine almost sweating even he may be half hand but he's full hat since the dawn of time we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people our group our tribe and why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe! Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full, spoiler-filled, first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members, with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today.
Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcast on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. As soon as I saw your email, I thought, oh, no, I think this person knows more than I do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. but (laughs) You know, I present this kind of this scholarly person who knows things about Martin's world. And the reality is, is that I fake it pretty well. And I, you know, I, I can do research. I know how to do research. But as soon as I saw your email, I thought, Okay, this I, I'm 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 definitely hazy on my Targaryen lineage content. So let's just for people that want to know, just fill us in on the email that you sent me last week. Yeah, so I sent Anthony an email um, about Aegon the Conqueror's mother, basically, and the Valerians. Um, and I think it's something that the showrunners may have missed or maybe just didn't pick up on or maybe just thought it didn't matter mm-hmm. and wanted to focus on some other things. But Fire and Blood is basically a history book. And I'm a history buff. I love it. I know a lot of people find it really dry, uh-huh. um, but I really love it. But I think that it gives the showrunners a lot of autonomy to kind of do whatever they want because in Ice and Fire, um, there's a lot more details, right? Right. So, Fire and Blood gives them a lot more to play with. And they decided to make the Valerians black. And I think that they missed that Aegon the Conqueror's mother was also Valerian. And in the email that I sent you, I put that Valina Valerian should have been black, obviously, if the show canon is going to keep up with that. I did do a little bit more research. And I don't know why I didn't think about this. But in the beginning of Fire and Blood, they talk about Valina, and she's the first Valyrian that they bring up. She is actually half Targaryen, half uh, Valyrian. Okay. But as you go forward in history, Jaehaerys, who is brought up at the beginning of Fire and Blood, um, his mother was Alyssa Valyrian. So she also would have been black, right? Right. Jaehaerys would have been some percentage of black. I don't want to say exactly what. Um, don't know if my math is necessarily right <laughs> and all of that, but he would have been close to 50% mm-hmm. black, maybe even mm-hmm. more than that. Um, and that means that Viserys would have been part black. That means Rhaenyra would have been part black. And I think that when you're getting into the discussion of who her children's fathers are, you know, them being bastards, um, I think that would have been a lot more in question had they really followed the Targaryen lineage Mm -hmm. and the Valyrian lineage. So let's just explain that I think you and I are both on the same page, that we kind of like the idea of Steve Toussaint being cast in this role. Like We're both pretty on board with the decision to bring more black actors into the show. Is that safe to say? Yes, I I love him. I think he's great. I think that it was the perfect choice. You know, as a black gay man, I'm totally for it. Okay, all right. And I'm for it for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons is just that I think it's really, it really adds something to the show to make it so freaking obvious. (laughs) These are not Lenore's children, you know? These are clearly not Lenore's children. So I, I like that decision. Um, now, uh, so that aside, that aside, um, I think that there's a couple ways that I could get at this argument if you are willing for a little bit of pushback. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let, let me push back a, li- a little bit there. I think there are two answers to your question. 
And so before I, before I give you my answers, let me just restate what I hear you saying first. The, the Targaryens and the Valerians have a long history of intermarriage. You know, going back to Aegon's, at least Aegon's mother, and probably long before that, you know, in old Valyria. And so if they are intermarrying, then they, they're they basically going to have the same complexion, the same eye color, and things like that. And um, and maybe the, the showrunners have overlooked this. Famously, Aegon the Conqueror's mother is Valerian. I think that's what you said in your email. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay, I'll give you the what I think is the right answer, and then I'll give you what I think is the nerdy answer. Okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. Here's the right answer. The right answer, in my mind, is the showrunners are not beholden to book canon, and so they kind of have free range to do whatever they want and to make changes wherever they want because that's just their prerogative. What do you think about this? To an extent, I agree, right? You know, maybe the showrunners, you know, they decided to go a different direction with things. But I think if they want to do that, then they have to answer that question somewhere along the line, right? Yeah. So maybe after that we get through, you know, the Dance of Dragons, they decide to go back and yeah, yeah. do, you know, Aegon the Conqueror's story um, and give us a little bit more backstory. And who knows, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe her father, you know was more white in complexion or, you know, maybe there's something there that we don't know. Um, and there could be, you know, there's always these hidden gems in George R. R. Martin's writing. Um, we always find out a lot of different things later. And in, yeah, even in, sure. um, in the show, we found out some interesting things with the dagger and the story of, um, you know, the song of ice and fire and Aegon having that dream. So I definitely think that there could be the showrunners kind of taking things in a different direction and playing with things. But I think that, yeah, they have to answer that at some point in time. So it's interesting. So I, you know, I'm, I'm just in a clash of kings right now, and I'm thinking about Sansa's narrative, and I'm thinking like in the show, what they do is they basically marry Sansa off to Ramsay Snow, and that does not happen in the books. And there's no explanation. It's just that the showrunners decided. We're going to conflate two characters here. We're not going to do a fake Arya plot. We're not going to do any of that business. We, for the purpose of this new genre, we just have to tell a different story. Uh, and as, as, as viewers, we kind of just go along for the ride. I think that for adaptations, you kind of expect these kinds of things. And, uh, and I'm okay with it. So I don't know if they'll ever ever have to kind of explain it for me to feel good about it. But I think that there there has to be a little bit of things have to line up and add up together, right? Like we all, well, I shouldn't say we all, but you know, I've been watching Star Trek. My grandparents watched Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. It's been a part of my family for a really long time. Yeah, me too. And there's definitely some different um, things going on in all the different series that they have, and all the different shows that they have, but things still primarily line up and even now we're we're getting explanations of things in the past i think to explain things and why they ended up the way that they are uh -huh. and i think that if george r. r martin is at the helm of this and he still is right like he still has some yeah. control over this and he can tell them no i don't want you guys to use my content or whatever um i think that things still have to line up somewhat and let's say that in the future someone else does want to create a show mm -hmm. i think it would be really confusing and could lead to major issues okay. if all of a sudden <laughs> the targaryens are mixed race right you know sure. and people are going to be really confused about okay that. so I, I i like this i love i love that we're bringing up star trek here all right are you a wharf fan a next generation wharf fan do you like the character wharf I, I I can't go that far, uh, and into it. Um, but yeah, I well, mean, the character Worf is famously played by a black actor who has this giant prosthetic on his forehead. Yeah, and then you go back and you're look, you know, you're looking at the way that the Klingons look in the original series. They do not look like Worf at all, and yeah, and you know, every now and again, there's kind of a nod to the the shift or whatever. And I'll be honest, it does, it does, it's it's a little disappointing to me that there isn't a little bit more continuity, but I kind of, I've come to expect it. 
But all right, so I gave you my uh, what I think is the right answer. But let me give you what I think is the nerdy answer. Okay, uh, are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's a really nerdy answer. Okay, so Corliss Valerian, uh, famously portrayed by Steve Toussaint, his mother is named Vaya or or Vaella. I'm not sure how to say that name right, but yeah. Okay, Viella is the daughter of Darren Targaryen, and her mother is Tyrashi. Her mother is a woman named Kiera of Tyrosh, which means that there is some intermarriage with sort of like some some other tribe of Essos. With Corliss Valerian's grandmother. So it's possible that, that the Valerians are white as white as white for a long time, going back to, you know, before the doom. And then at the generation of Corliss's grandmother, we have some influx of Tyrashi influence into the genetics. And maybe that's when the new phenotypes come into play. So that would be my super nerdy answer. It's like, eh, maybe we don't really know what, you know, what what uh, care of Tyrosh looked like. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah, that could be it, you know. You know, going back to kind of Valina, like I was saying, we don't really know mm-hmm. exactly, you know, what her yeah, yeah, yeah. father would have looked like, you know. And same also with her mother, right? Um, so that could be the answer. That could be where they're stemming it from. Mm-hmm. But I think that I guess they don't really necessarily have to answer the question per se, because there's a lot of people that just watch the show to watch the show. Right, right. But maybe it's George R. R. Martin's problem to answer somewhere in all of his books that he is writing. Um, or maybe not. Maybe it's just like, you know, he's decided to go one direction and maybe, mm, sure. you know, the shows are going to go their direction. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think just to reiterate, I don't think that this is, I think that you're going to find other people who are online who know this far better than I do. And they're going to say, you know, uh, Kiara of Tyrosh doesn't solve the problem. And and I would say, yeah, that was sort of my attempt to create some wiggle room. At the end of the day, the nerdy answer is not the right answer. I think the right answer is adaptation, showrunners make choices. They are not beholden to the canon. And you and I, of course, might yearn for continuity. But... We, we sometimes we don't get it, and I think that that's just part of being a fan of a show that's based on a book, but doesn't isn't always faithful to the book. Yeah, but I also think it's also um, part of the times that we live in, the world that we live in, right? To that, you know, the Targaryens happen to be white, and they yeah. want to continue to to push that and peddle that. Whereas, you know, maybe if the show came out of a different place in the world it may have not necessarily yeah been that way. no I, I i totally get that dude i really appreciate the conversation thank you so much for making the time for it of course it was great to be here thanks for having me